Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome into the StoryCraft Cafe. Here at the cafe, not only do we have live writing events like we're in the middle of right now in our rewrite a novel in 60 days challenge, but we also have interviews with some of the best authors publishing today. And today I'm really proud to have William Kent Kruger on the show with me. Kent is here to talk about this new endeavor uh, that he has of publishing audiobook originals. Audiobooks are the fastest growth market in publishing right now. And he has the story, we talk about it today, that he has worked on for many decades and finally found a place and a home for this story in a unique format. And what a what a fantastic story it is. We're going to talk all about it today. Be sure to join us over at storycraft.cafe where we're in the middle of our rewrite a novel challenge and we'll have another live show next thursday that you can tune in and and listen in live and add your comments and we have a great uh live back and forth there we'll also play the replay of that on this podcast channel the first of next week but until all of that join us for a conversation with william ken kruger And we are live here in the StoryCraft Cafe. I am your host, Hank Garner, and today I am super excited to have uh, William Kent Kruger on the show with me today. He has a phenomenal new project that I really love, and I know you're going to as well. If you followed my work, um, you know that that Kent has been on the show um, a number of times in the past, and we've had some fantastic conversations. And uh, when I saw that he had a new project, and a different sort of project, I knew that we had to get him on and talk about it. So welcome, uh, welcome to the show, Kent. How are you? Um, I am doing very well, Hank, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you. I, it's the same. Uh, I feel the same way. We were we were actually supposed to talk last week, I believe it was, but you got snowed in there. You had some some inclement weather where you were. I hope all that worked itself out. Yeah, I was in uh, in Florida for a book event there and was scheduled to fly back on Wednesday, but the snowpocalypse was predicted to hit. <laughs> they were predicting up to two feet of snow. Um, all flights were canceled. And so I had to spend another day in idyllic Florida. It was horrible. Uh, <laughs> but I finally made it home. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that was uh, a bit of culture shock going from warm, balmy Florida to snowpocalypse weather. Hey. I live in, I've lived in Minnesota for more than 40 years. I'm used to this. You're used to it. Yeah, for sure. Well, we, uh, we live in South Mississippi and our weather's not a lot different than Florida. And, um, uh, you know, I have, uh, coworkers that live in the mountains in Utah and it's so funny, you know, going back and forth that, you know, they're shoveling snow one day and we have pine pollen, you know, everywhere. And it's, you know, every, every place has their stuff, I guess. There are good things and bad things, no matter where you live. 
One hundred percent. One hundred percent. You know, the uh, the thing about, you know, living uh, up north is you don't have to dodge hurricanes every year, but you do have to shovel snow. So there's. Yeah, we don't get uh, we don't get hurricanes. Uh, We get fewer tornadoes than we used to have in the old days. But uh, this year we really have been hit with uh, one of the legendarily bad Minnesota winters. Wow. We haven't seen in quite a while. Well, you know, it's good to see the snow when you haven't seen a bunch of it, you know, but it, it kind of grates on you after a while. I think. <laughs> yeah, this is the first year I thought, hmm, maybe I should be a snowbird. Yeah, right, right. Oh, man. Uh, well, Kent, you have a you have a new project out and um, this one is called The Levy and it is um, what well, it, it's new in a couple of senses. It's not in your uh, O'Connor series. This is, you know, with that series that we've grown to love and love following, you know, this cast of characters and, and, you know, the, the amazing stories that you tell in that world. So this one is not in that world and it takes place in the past. Um, but also, excuse me, the, the distribution is a little different. This one is, uh, is an audio original and it's coming out only in audio, uh, for a selected time. And then it'll, I'm assuming will come out in print, uh, later down the road. Do, do I have the logistics of that right? Well, uh, th- there is uh, nothing um, written in stone about it coming out in print <laughs> farther okay. down the road a piece. When, uh, when uh, Simon & Schuster picked up the project, they simply picked it up as an audio book, original, um, which was fitting with uh, a direction they wanted to go. They are really invested in um, providing that audio experience for yeah. who, who love literature and for whom that's a reasonable way to access it. Um, over the years, audios, audiobooks have become more and more popular um, for a, a whole variety of reasons. So, and you know, this is a novella, Hank, yeah. which is kind of an odd, it's an odd length. Uh, back in the old days when you had Life and so many other uh, uh magazine publications who would print a long short story or a novella. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it, you had a reasonable uh, place for publishing, but they don't exist that way anymore. And to try to put out a novella, you know, this was 130 pages, I think, in manuscript form on a shelf beside a full sized book just doesn't work. So finding the right platform for offering this was important. And Simon & Schuster uh, believed that the audio, this original audio book was the way to go. So did, was this a project that you had previous to Simon Schuster kind of pitching this idea? Like what, what came first? I, I guess I'm asking the, the opportunity to publish or the thing that needed to be published. Hank, I took my first crack at writing the levy 50 years ago. Really? <laughs> yeah, when I was in my 20s. I read uh, Faulkner's uh, novella, The Old Man, which uh, takes place uh, during that great flood on the Mississippi oh, yeah. River back in the spring of 27. But, but those of you in southern Mississippi, you probably are steeped in the history of that particular yes. flood because you were horribly affected by it. At, at Memphis, uh, during the height of the flood, the Mississippi River was 80 miles wide. So I read The Old Man, which is about uh, a convict who is conscripted to try to save a pregnant woman trapped in right. this mud. And I just loved the whole idea of that story. And so when I was in my 20s, I gave it a whack, didn't do such a good job of it, put it aside. And I was taking a creative writing class in my 40s at the University of Minnesota, pulled that short story um, out of the cobwebs, and dusted it off and gave it another shot. 
it uh, got a lot of approval by my colleagues in the class and the instructor, but they, they all had basically the same criticism. There's a richer, longer story uh, to be had here. So I put it back uh, in, my, in my drawer of unpublished pieces. And uh, during the pandemic, you know, I wrote two uh, full-length novel manuscripts. I wrote a couple of other novellas and, and kind of was at the end of my rope in terms of ideas. So I opened that drawer, pulled out the levy, dusted it off, and um, completely rewrote the piece as it stands right now. So it has a long history before Simon & Schuster ever took a look at it. I love that. And um, I love the idea that this was a project that you had previously written and really couldn't find a home for because I, I talked to a lot of authors and a lot of the, the vast majority of authors have a story of having that trunk novel, that desk drawer novel that just didn't work for whatever reason. And they file it away and just start something brand new. And, and that, that is fascinating enough as it is that someone would spend a huge chunk of their life working on a project, it doesn't work. So they just start all over again, you know, just with a blank page. And, you know, that's one thing that separates writers from other artists that, you know, will just, will just start over and with no hopes that the next thing is going to work either, but you just take a crack at it. And, you know, there's, there's some psychology of writers. I don't, I don't know. I'm not qualified to dissect that, but I do find it interesting. You know, every writer knows, Hank, you never throw anything away. <laughs> right. uh, at some point in time, you may decide, okay, I know how to write that story now. Uh, I understand the story better for whatever reason. And you and you pull it out of the mothballs and uh, take another crack at it. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it, it doesn't. But, you know, uh, take a look at some of the great masterpieces in visual art. Um, experts know that under some of those great paintings, are other paintings that the, right. the, uh, the artist simply wasn't happy with and painted over. So, you know, it's not just, not just writers who do this. <laughs> was, was there something about this story that just, you know, because like you said, um, there, there's nothing ever goes to waste. Either you find a way to rework that story or you rob it for parts and you take a character out of this and plug it into another story or there's something enchanting about a setting here that might work over here, you know, and you kind of dissect it and use it. Um, but what was it about this story that, that lasted, that, that made you want to go back to it? There, there had to be a kernel of something that really resonated deeply with you. Oh, absolutely. Um, the whole idea of this enormous natural event um, and and there are some, you know, frail human beings doing their best to battle that. That enormous flood has yeah. always attracted me. You know, that's a pretty classic story. Um, and uh, and motivations. Uh, you know, I always love to explore what are the motivations for people doing what seem making what seem like inexplicably bad decisions. Right. Uh, and so it it I kept coming back to that. But you know what really kind of uh, shifted everything for me, Hank, was uh, all of the experience that in the intervening years I've had in writing crime fiction. And when I dusted this piece off, I realized I had put in place um, all of the elements for a really interesting, suspenseful kind of crime situation that I had never really explored. And so that really was the piece that fell into place that made this 
such a lot of fun to come back to and rework. Well, what's fun about this story to me is that um, there are um, crime novels that you love that are very visceral and the the crime is is really kind of – just there on the page and and then you see how characters you know deal with the fallout of that and you know all of that but then there's a more subtle uh, approach which you do in the levy and that that there's uh we have people that have been involved in crime we've got um you know uh, convicts and uh, and then we have the um the the feelings of fear and distrust uh, that kind of permeate through through this, and so it's not so visceral as some of your other stories, yet still as um, I'm, I'm grasping for words. It's still it, it's not as uh, graphic and visceral, but still as emotionally present. Yeah, uh, that deep emotional I hope involvement on the part of the reader comes from everything that surrounds the the criminal action that ends up taking place in this story. Yeah. And I like the fact that, and um, I don't know, maybe it's because of what I've learned as a storyteller, that um, that the criminal aspect of it seems to come suddenly out of the blue, not expecting it at all. And then it adds, for me, as the storyteller, it added this wonderfully rich um all these rich possibilities. Yeah. Texture. That's texture. Exactly. Exactly. And so in addition to this, this great flood that everybody's battling, suddenly there is another element that needs to be addressed as well. Yeah. Um, at the risk of sounding ageist, um, because that, that's not what I'm, what I'm trying to say here, but, um, that there are, stunning novels that have been written by uh, people barely out of their teens in their early twenties. And, you know, that are just emotionally rich and the writers really in, in connection with their, you know, whole being and those things exist. I'm I'm not saying that. Um, But this is a story that you started trying to tell in your twenties. And as you said, 50 years later, you finally tell the story of was this a story that you personally needed to mature into if, if that makes sense at all yeah it does as a matter of fact and there, there, there are stories we would like to write when we're young because we think oh this will be a great story a great story right but in truth we don't have an understanding of uh, of the world of human nature of all the complexities of human interaction that allow us to really explore that deeply and be able to create it in a believable way on the on the written page or in this case uh, for the listener. Uh, right. So I think you're you're absolutely right. I had to um, I had to learn. Well, I had to learn who I was as a storyteller. That was a part of the journey. You know, at 20 years of age, I have no idea what kind of a story I I'm, was able to write. What, really, in the end, what kind of a story I wanted to write. And it took me a long time. You know, I served a very long apprenticeship before I became a published author, Hank. <laughs> um, and, and it has stood me in good stead. So, I, you know, I don't think it's ageist at all. I think it's just uh, the observation uh, that so many of us, you know, when I broke into the business, I had gray in my hair. What what hair I had left at that point. Um, and, <laughs> Tell uh, me about it. <laughs> and so many of my colleagues also, when they finally broke into, made that the, the move to either write their first piece or publish their first piece had gray in their hair. Yeah. 
you you have spent um, the last uh, a lot of years working on uh, Cork O'Connor mm-hmm. and writing his stories, and um, you've really crafted a world that is so much fun to just immerse ourselves into. Um, stepping out of Cork's world and and telling this story, um, what does I guess what I'm asking is what does it do for you as a writer to change scenery sometimes and to step out of the comfortable confines of the world and the characters that you've created? You know, as writers, I think all of us need to think of ourselves as artists and words are our medium. And if we really think of ourselves as artists, we always ought to be um, trying to grow in art. We ought to always try trying to push our limitations um, and, uh, and so when I use, when I step away from the Cork O'Connor series, I'm able to paint on a broader canvas. I'm able to tackle issues, themes, uh, that, that I'm a little restricted in, uh, trying to address in my Cork O'Connor series. So I really, I love, I love the levy for that reason, different time, different place, um, different approach. Um, and I have loved my standalone novels, Ordinary Grace, This Tender Land, for exactly the same reason. And I think that those of us who write series, when we do something different, come back to the series feeling a little refreshed. Yeah, it, it, it definitely did, – did you find yourself, when you, when you step away from Cork's world, do you start kind of – wondering i wonder what's going on over there you know what's <laughs> what's going on in the in the in the frozen wasteland while i'm you know down here floating on a flooded river <laughs> while i'm at work on uh, one of the other projects i i have to be truthful i'm not really thinking much about cork o'connor i really focus on cork when it comes time to uh, begin work on the the next manuscript for which i have a, a contractual obligation yeah. um, so uh, i am working now on the next cork o'connor novel which won't be released until the fall of 2024. And I, I'm aware that I've been away from it for a while, so I need to re-steep myself in, uh, in the environment and the characters in order to really write believably again uh, about Cork and everybody involved in, in the life there. Uh, in the levy, um, you, you know, you, you mentioned um, that great Faulkner novel, uh, The Old Man, and and, you know, his telling of this this happening um there there have been a couple of other great novels um that that at least um have a view into this event um i think john grisham's the painted house um there's there's a flood there was it i can't remember if it was this flood or not. it's been several years since i read anyway um it you know, floods a lot in the south apparently well well yeah we we get a lot of rain and they're big rivers it's that's going <laughs> to happen from time to time um what was it about this uh that really captured your imagination you know because this was this was an event that uh, that not only affected the south because the mississippi river runs the entire uh length of of the united states just about and and these happenings started up north and all kind of flooded down. Uh, so it's not just something that that happens in our world, but you know, uh, but what was it about this singular event that was so captivating to you? Well, the the enormity of the event itself, 
Um, and I knew about the the flooding, that great flood on the Mississippi River uh, from the time I read Faulkner onward. And so it's yeah. been an intriguing uh, incident for me um, to think about, to contemplate, and, and particularly because I tried very early on to write a story about it. You know, it is an historical novel. I, I, did, I didn't live back in 1927, <laughs> so I had to do an enormous amount of research just to get a sense of uh, the extent of the flood and the damage that it had done. And so I, um, oh, Hank, I looked at so many photographs of the flood while it was happening and the devastation after it, it receded, and I was just blown away by the, the enormity of the catastrophe. Um, and I have always been interested in, and sort of the whole question, and you see this in the Cork O'Connor novels all the time, which take place in the wilderness, of pitting uh, human beings against what nature can right. throw at them. So here in Minnesota, you know, I put Cork into blizzard situations, I think, oh, several yeah. times, because um, up here, this the the winter can kill you if you're not careful sure. uh, levy it's the it's it the can river. kill you pretty quickly yeah but you know in, in terms of that particular event it really was south of the ohio river that took it on the chin right the the what caused the flooding really you're right took place up north in the ohio river valley and uh on the upper midwest on the mississippi river where it rained relentlessly and uh, and it culminated in uh, the flooding that took place then south of that you know, you mentioned um, earlier that, uh, you know, that, that we probably have a, a cultural memory of this event that still kind of seeps in the South had um, you had the Civil War, um, which yeah. happened and then Reconstruction. And then you had World War One uh, that that then, you know, changed so many families. And then to get hit with with something like this. It, yeah, I'm just one devastation after another, you know, just over and over and over. Um, what sorts of sources did you use to to really get into the the mindset of what of, of how this thing affected the people and and what what that um, what that tone should feel like? Well, I read several news accounts uh, from the day. Um, I read some accounts by first-person accounts by people who had uh, lived along the river at, at that period of time and and what it did uh, in their lives. Uh, but I have to tell you honestly, you know, after I had done my research and and uh, looked at the photographs, I just relied on my imagination. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, so when you when you finally. Uh, felt like you could tell the story again. You said that you completely rewrote it. Yeah. Um, what What does that mean? You You hear authors talk about rewriting. So sometimes they they mean actually just a heavy edit going through. But or did you start again with the blank page, having the story in your mind that you had already told? But w what did that process look like for you? Well, I have to tell you honestly, I I didn't hold on to copies of the stories that I wrote early on. Lost that first piece that I tried many, many years ago. Lost uh, the story that I uh, that I um, wrote when I was in my 40s for the University of Minnesota Creative Writing class. So when I sat down, I was sitting down writing just as a remembering how I had tried to structure the story and just moving on from there. So essentially it was a complete, with the exception of the setup, 
for the piece. It was a completely new rewrite of it. I, I, I remember the, the, some of the characters. I introduced new characters. Um, I sketched out some of the characters that I had only given, uh, you know, sort of glancing notice in the earlier versions. Um, and I, I lengthened it by adding uh, a, a significant event in the middle of the story that uh, that that um, doesn't alter anything, <laughs> but certainly adds to the fun of everything. Right, right. And I, uh, and, I re and I rethought significantly the ending. How did I really want this piece to come together in the end? What what was the feeling I wanted the reader as they're floating down the river with our characters at the end? What did I want the reader uh, to to be feeling at that point? Well, not to give away the ending because I, I don't want you to give away the ending, but um, did you did you uh, come up with a different culmination of the story from what you were thinking uh, all those years ago? That like did your place in life now dictate a, a, uh, a, did you feel like, you know, I I'm capable of conveying this emotion properly now, or, you know, did, did your ending represent something different now than it would have back then? I think it probably, I become a more compassionate human being across my life. <laughs> you didn't feel the need to torture your characters the way you used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you if you look at my Cork O'Connor series, few people, fewer people die these days. Than my <laughs> um, and uh, I think in the. Uh, in, you know, I have a mission in my work these days. I, I want to write stories that in the end are about hope, about survival, about people overcoming um, the odds against them, um, people achieving a place of, of compassion and forgiveness. And I think I found that in this story, but you wouldn't have found it in either of the two earlier versions. Things yeah. just happened and that's just all there was to it. And now it was like, no, there's, it's not just things happen, they affect people. There right. is, um, there's a, there are, there's a journey for these people beyond what happens yeah. in this story. And I wanted to point that direction. Well, um, just to give people some, some context of, of what we're talking about, the, uh, the main characters in the book are, uh, a set of convicts and a trustee who are sent out to, um, to, to try to help rescue uh, some people and a family uh, that 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 the rescuers believe are trapped by the flood and right. need rescuing and hmm. but the family has has other has other plans other <laughs> <laughs> right. um I, I love the idea that you have uh, a group of convicts um uh, that set out to do this you know noble deed and i'm i'm air quoting uh, noble deed here um but that that immediately sets up some tension yeah. uh, in the story, but also in the reader, because it makes us confront uh, our prejudices about how we judge people on the surface. And this is something that you've been doing with Cork O'Connor for years and years. And and that's, you know, forcing me as a reader to confront my preconceived notions and my prejudices and the things that I bring to the story. And, uh, you know, normally by the end of the story, you've made me think differently about something, which is, which is a hallmark of a great writer is that you have, um, lovingly taken me by the hand and brought me to the end of the book as a different person, as a reader. Um, were 
did you have those sort of heady notions uh, going into this book, or was it just a, a fun, uh, you know, kind of plot device to play with? Yeah, I try not to go to any book with heady notions. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's going to sink your ship right away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I go it's into fun a at the end when you look back and say, oh, there, this, I didn't know I was doing that. Well, actually, as I'm going along, uh, I, I get a suggestion of, where I could go that might make it the story richer and maybe uh, a little deeper story. Yeah. Um, and so in this case, for example, um, in the early days, my characters were just my characters, with the exception of Dobbs, who is pretty much uh, the, the centerpiece uh, character-wise for the story. Yeah. The others were just set, they were there to do what, what they were supposed to do. In this piece, I, I thought more deeply about these people. And you, you talk about your preconceived notions about convicts. And so as I thought about these characters, um, you know from having listened to the story, the three convicts, although they are all serving time, are serving time for different reasons. Right. And, uh, and they have their own backstories for how that occurred and why that occurred and how they each one of them has accepted or not um, their situation. Yeah. Um, the, the narrator in this, uh, in this book, JD Jackson. Yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've heard JD narrate a couple of other books and he always does a phenomenal job and just brings texture and life to a story that, you know, is, he has such a, um, subtle, um narration style some some people are very bombastic and and while while jd can definitely bring emotion to it he does it in a uh in a very subtle way and it, when you listen to it the listeners you'll you'll understand what i'm what i'm talking about um but when you're when you're writing or when you go through the editorial phase and you know that this is going to be an audiobook production uh it's at some point you you knew that this was going to wind up in audio form do you start thinking about writing passages that you know someone is going to perform uh as opposed to you know someone holding the book and flipping pages does does that come into your creative process at all well you know think about it hank um for millennia storytelling was an oral tradition right um, so as I write, I am speaking the words to myself and sometimes out loud. Uh, my wife thinks I'm crazy sometimes <laughs> because I'm sitting in her typewriter and my mouth's moving along with my, my fingers. Um, and so I'm very conscious of how the story sounds, yeah. how the cadence, whether I've ca uh, created cadences that are um, pleasing. Um, and uh, But I have to tell you, um, my editor at Simon & Schuster, my audiobook editor, who's been uh, doing this work for a very long time, had some wonderful suggestions in terms of altering the text a bit to make it more accessible or for the reader to hear um, how I introduced characters, for example, um, those kinds of things. Uh, she was just very helpful in terms of crafting this piece a bit more for a listening audience. Yeah. Well, I, I absolutely love this book. Um, do you do you think that you'll ever um, return uh, to to the scene of, scene of the crime, as it were, and, and tell other stories here? I would love for you to. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you have any ideas or not. Well, I have a couple of uh, other novellas that I wrote uh, during the pandemic. Uh, we'll see how this one does. And 
and then we'll see what might uh, happen down the road. But I have to tell you, Hank, if you look at uh, the levee, if you look at Ordinary Grace, if you look at this tender land, and I have a new standalone coming out this fall called The River We Remember, they are all set in the past. I become more and more enamored of writing stories uh, set in the past for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Uh, what, what is, what's the the main reason? What, why do you think it's, uh, is it easier to tell those stories? Does it, does it seem to be a, a richer tapestry that you can paint? What, what is it about writing in the past? Do you think? Well, if you write crime stories, uh, contemporary crime stories, you have to keep up with all the technology as it develops Lord, contemporary yes. uh, crime investigation. And boy, there's so, so much happening. That's just very difficult to do. So many crime stories would unravel if they could just pull out their cell phone and send <laughs> yeah. a text message. <laughs> you have to be very careful. I like writing about the past because things are already set in place. Um, and so I can construct a story around what what already exists and i don't have to worry about um you know being completely wrong because wait a minute the technology has changed <laughs> i love it the levy is out everywhere now um you can grab it audiobook format this is an audiobook original uh we'll put a link in the show notes where you can go over to audible and grab it the levy william kent kruger kent this has been so much fun catching up please come back this fall and let's talk about your new book then I'm all yours, Hank. Excellent. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening.